Stand, if you would, for the reading of the word. We're in Daniel, chapter 11, and we've made it to verse 36. And whereas last week we read 35 verses, this Sunday we just have but a few. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one who loved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rule over many and shall divide the land for a price. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The structure of our text versus our title might need an explanation. Uh, Mark is preaching in the other services and he lays this out and schedules this for us and he decided that he wanted to preach on some of what we did last week and, and, and really hammer it home and I don't blame him at all. And so he has taken one of the verses which was our main text last week. We talked about the great conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. But the real conflict is between the kings, the pagan kings, and the people of God. And it tells God's people what they should do. They should stand firm and they should take action. And that's what uh, is the title of the message today. And that's what Mark will be preaching on that verse and the related matters as well. But I want to stay on our historical track because I think we need to stay there. There's plenty to say about this particular passage what we have when we get to here is we have the introduction of the fourth kingdom. Now, those of you who've been staying with us know what we've done. We've gone through the book of Daniel. We're at the very last of it. This is the vision that God gives to Daniel that just absolutely horrifies him. It completely eviscerates him emotionally in every way. He's, he's stunned. And then the Lord gives him a narrative through the angel or if it's, if it's a Christophany, if it's the appearance of Christ himself in his pre-incarnate state, it very well may have been. I think it might have been, but uh, we're not going to be dogmatic on the point. It's the Lord's word communicated either way, either through the living word or through an angel. And uh, the word to uh, Daniel is that horrible things are going to happen to God's people in the coming days. Now, the coming days are a period of about five centuries the period of time from the beginning of the Persian reign, Cyrus, all the way through 500 years approximately to the coming of Christ, the age of Messiah, the birth of Jesus, which we've just celebrated in several weeks of Advent. So that's the scope of where we are. You remember way back in, in chapter 2, there was a, a vision that was given, and it was a vision of an image, and the great image had several parts, and then the... Uh, some action took place. A great stone was hewn out of a mountain, but not with human hands. And that stone came rushing down and crashed into the feet and legs of the great image and literally pulverized and destroyed the great image. 
Well, we know the great image was the, the uh, uh, type of the four kingdoms that were to come. First, Babylon, which we were at the be- uh, beginning of the Babylonian rule and the exile for God's people at that time. And then another kingdom to come was the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire would take over overnight, literally, and we saw the fall of Belshazzar and the takeover by Darius and then the things that happened all through the Persian reign leading up finally to the last of the Persian king, Xerxes. And then the third kingdom took place and that was the Greek empire with Alexander the Great and then his four generals that came after him and the world was divided into those four quadrants and they ruled over through especially the one that's called the king of the north was Syria. The king of the south were the Ptolemies. The king of the north was the, uh, the Antiochus family. And so the, the, uh, the dominion there uh, sort of climaxed with Antiochus the Great and then his son, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes um, was one that caused great trouble. He was the one that brought about the abomination of desolation in his last days of conquest as he transversed from the north to the south, back and forth. He would go through the, the section there along the Mediterranean, which was the Holy Land, and he would cause all kinds of problems, and we talked a little bit about that last week. So we've, we've gone through three of these giant empires, these worldwide kingdoms. Now we've come to the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire, and let's just go back and read the description of it in chapter 2. I'll read it for you. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Pay attention to some of these descriptions of this kingdom, because that's what we're looking at this this morning. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, be intermarrying and, uh, and expansion in this kingdom. And they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And then here's the key verse, verse 44 of chapter 2. And in the the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. In other words, during that fourth kingdom, which is being described here, it is described further in our text today, God's going to come and set up his kingdom. And that is precisely what happens in the middle of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, and as Rome is established and becomes the worldwide uh, empire under the Caesar, the August one, Octavian, Augustus Caesar, Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. And that, of course, is the birth of the kingdom of God and its king and its, and its um, uh, anointed one, Christ. So that's the historical. So when we get to the fourth kingdom, we've really gotten to the last kingdom because the last conflict and the last great battle of human history is going to be between that fourth kingdom, Rome, and the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And so that's the the context. So here's here's the description of it. Uh, it shall break to pieces all those kingdoms and then bring them to an end and they shall, it shall stand forever. 
Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, all of it, all the remnants of the kingdom of man, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And this, of course, is Daniel interpreting to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is, be, is aware now of this historical perspective, which is really predictive prophecy at this point. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Many times you've noticed in the book of Daniel, the Lord reassures us of the veracity and the faithfulness of his word. These things are decreed. They're going to come to pass. And the remarkable thing is, as we sit here now at the end of the third kingdom, the final destruction of the final uh, uh, kingdom of Syria, the northern kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes, fades away. And what we see is we see the beginning of... Um, Rome, it was mentioned in the text last week prior to that, that the ships coming from the coast, of course, that's the, the ships of Rome sailing across the Mediterranean to the extreme east side of the Mediterranean and to the shores of Palestine, Palestine, Palestine's in Texas, Palestine's in the Middle East. I get those two mixed up all my, all my life. At least I know where Athens and Paris are in Texas. <clears throat> But, but these, these Roman conquerors, uh, uh, Attalus, uh, subjected Syria to Rome, uh, Crassus, Pompey, eventually took over Spain, Africa, Sicily. And then, of course, the Caesars at the first shared uh, Gaul, which is now France and, and most of what we think of as Western Europe and Italy. And they, they conquered these parts piece by piece in the second and going into the first century B.C. So now we're into around give or take uh, 30 or 40 years, we're around 100 B.C. when all of these conquests are beginning to take place. Of course, the, finally it's all uh, put together and, and, and uh, 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 consolidated under Julius Caesar. He ends up conquering and, and, and basically bribing and purchasing and every other kind of way you can think of it. He acquires uh, all of these territories, all these nations, and eventually they are all subjugated to Rome so that by the time we get to the days of Christ or the, the, the decades before Christ was born, we're, we're now in a period of time where, where Rome is dominating the entire world. It's conquered, sea, uh, conquered uh, Syria and uh, in Asia as far as uh, India, all the way east. It has conquered Africa, the old Ptolemaic Empire, but as well as all of Northern Africa going down into Ethiopia. It has conquered all of what we would think of as Europe, Northern Europe especially, and has gone all the way up into Britannia, up into, into Britain, into the Isles, the, the Roman Empire, through Gaul, which is France, all the way through there, and then also west to the Iberian Peninsula with the Hispania, Spain and Portugal. So you get your geography and you see the Mediterranean and you see all of Europe and you see all of North Africa and you see the East and, and especially Asia Minor, Turkey, modern Turkey and all that area. So the Roman Empire now is the most powerful of them all. It has advanced and been conquered. Uh, they have, um, Rome has formed an alliance somewhat in the earliest days that we're speaking of with the, with the Judean government because you remember the... Judean government 
not the government, but individuals within it, especially one particular family, had led a rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes. And as he retreated, they were able to sort of secure some independence. So the Hasmanian dynasty, or the John Hyrcanus, Matthias, all of that priesthood, now was kind of ruling Israel. As interestingly enough, in, they were occupying an office which had kind of seemingly kind of organically created itself, and that was an office of, of king, a ruler, and priest, putting kingdom and priesthood together, which, of course, that ultimately is a, a, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God, where it's a kingdom of priests. And um, uh, that's uh, the, the, the uh, group that the Romans made some alliance with, some treaty, gave some measure of independence, but eventually... Uh, they did what the Romans do, and that is they set up their own uh, monarchs and did what they wanted to, and they worked with a fellow by the name of Herod, Herod the Great. And so when Herod, and then eventually his family, and the, Herod, the Herodian dynasty ruled all through Judea in that area, all during the days of Christ and into the days of the apostles. And, and we read about them in, in the Gospels, the book of Acts, we read about the Herods, several descendants and uh, uh, of the uh, of Herod the Great, Herod the Great was was uh, uh, one who claimed to be a Jew, although he was really uh, an Edomite. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau rather than Jacob. Which there you see the conflict continuing with those two brothers down through the centuries. And uh, he ruled uh, in the name of Rome. He had uh, patronage, and that was in, enabled him to do that. But he tried to please Rome, and he tried to please the people of Judea at least as much as possible so he could get along. And we see these dynamics when we come to the crucifixion of Christ, uh, the way that the politics were working uh, out in those days. So eventually we come down to this. Well, I want to talk just for a minute about, about the Roman Empire itself, and I'm going to generalize. So those of you who really know your history and know the, pre the precise numbers and some of the precise uh, uh, descriptions, bear with me. I am generalizing, and all generalizations are false, including the one I just made. And so th that's, that's really kind of what happens when you, when you kind of get a big scope. And that's what makes it so delightful to read the Word of God at this point, because these descriptions are vague. And yet, when you contemplate it, and in light of the fulfillment or in light of history, you can just see that it makes all kinds of sense when they talk about, uh, you know, the disappearance of a king and talking about uh, the uh, marriages and so forth that, that took place in the ancient world. It's, it's just absolutely amazing to see uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, coordination between the predictive prophecy of Daniel and the actual uh, uh, events of history as they occur. In fact, that correlation is so strong that some more liberal scholars just insist that Daniel's written after the events, that he was not written by Daniel in, on the Euphrates River back 500 B.C., but it was written by some Maccabean scholar. It was written by somebody that lived in the period of, of after Antiochus Epiphanes, closer to the, uh, to the, uh, the, the days of Christ. And, and then just wrote basically history and then tried to craft it as predictive prophecy. Well, that's as fraudulent as it gets. If, if God is a God of truth, he gives us true, dependable, uh, authentic, faithful prediction and prophecy. And, and he, he has no problem because he's going to bring it to pass. 
So shall my word be that go forth out of my mouth, the Lord said. It shall accomplish that thing whereto I sent it. And so, and even here he talks about appointed times, it's decreed, it's definite. So this whole idea of how things unfold is proof of the truthfulness of Scripture. It's not the other way around. So um, we get to Rome. Let's get, let's get to Rome while I have a moment here to do it. Uh, the, the description here, uh, we saw several things that we can uh, point to, but I'll just roughly summarize them. Um, Rome ended up having uh, the most powerful um, nation and empire in the history of humanity. And I'm going to make the case in just a moment that, uh, that the Roman Empire is still with us. That what Rome did uh, has survived uh, 21 centuries and is still going strong. In fact, it's more Rome-like today than it was then. Uh, and by that I mean uh, we find that it, was, uh, it did several things. The, uh, um, the Roman Empire was atheistic. Now, the gods were everywhere. All the pagans had gods. We know how they related their gods to their kings and how they had their power and their, their, their conquest and their, their victories. And they all credited their gods with their victories and, and suffered their defeats. And that was one of the things that made uh, the history so fascinating is that the religion and the superstition and the culture of the people, the morals of the people, the belief system of the people, uh, the very systems of the people, the economic systems and all that, were all intertwined. And by the way, they always are. You can't have culture without religion. And, uh, and, but most of them were very superstitious, very much into idolatry. We're very familiar with that. We really saw it in the case of the Babylonians. But the, but the Romans uh, had a layer of sophistication that was just almost remarkable for the ancient world. Uh, Cato, Cicero, you can read some of them. They didn't believe in any of those silly idols. They didn't believe any of those silly idols had any kind of power to them. And they didn't believe in the superstitions and all the rituals that were handed down from the generations before to the, from the fathers down to the people. The Romans knew that all that was meaningless. The Romans knew that real power was at the end of the barrel of the gun, if they had had it back then. That's exactly what they, they understood. They knew that ultimate power could be seized and kept and swayed by their own leaders. The Romans knew that what it amounted to was they were the ultimate power, that the ultimate power resided in man, collective man. They were collectivists, and collective man made up the state, and the state was represented by people. So they had a form of democracy. They had senators who were somewhat elected or appointed by the people, depending on the area and the region they came from, sometimes depending on how much money they spent buying the office. But nevertheless, things don't change much, do they? Uh, they, they, would, uh, they would rule that way. And it was the Senate that had the ultimate power. It was collective man. It was collectivism that, that ruled their thought process when it came to ultimate power. And they didn't have any regard whatever. That's why they hated the Jews so much is because the Jews insisted upon one God. Now, Rome had no problem with having one God as long as that God was Rome. And the head at Rome, Caesar, 
Uh, they, 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 would, they would hold with, to a monotheism when you think of God that way, but that ain't how they thought of God. They were very uncomfortable with the idea of a one true God, and so the Israelites who held this view come, came under persecution from the very beginning and stayed under persecution, and finally in the days of uh, following Christ in the days of the early church in 70 A.D., Rome finally just had all it could take, and it crushed, completely crushed, the uh, religion, as well as the state, the nation, and, and to, to a large extent, the population of the Jewish people in 70 AD. Uh, Rome was, was thoroughly going atheistic. They were cynical. They, they didn't have any regard for any, uh, anything sacred, and they had no, uh, nothing but ridicule for the sincere, devout, religious people of whatever nation they conquered. Now, they would accommodate them, and, and use religion and superstition as, as, a, as a wedge and a, and a lever to get the things done they wanted. And they would give lip service to it from time to time. Even the skeptics would give lip service because that's what the hoi polloi, that's what the population, the people would believe. But that was their general attitude toward God. And they went so far as, as the text said, they began to say outstanding, in fact, over-the-top ridiculous things as blasphemies against God. And they had no regard, whatever. You remember Pilate, who was thoroughly educated in the ethos of Rome, asked the cynical question, what is truth? In his dialogue with Christ there, at Christ hearing before his crucifixion. Another thing, they were materialistic. They, they had discovered before that what really amounted to was to get, the, to get the, the power, you need the wealth of a country. It's not enough to deal militarily, but you have to deal with the economic system. You have to have your hand on the central bank. You have to be able to run everything uh, in that way. And so they, they were very sensitive about money. Remember, we mentioned earlier that Xerxes, the last of the Persian kings, had raised a huge amount of money, the wealthiest potentate in the ancient Orient. And yet he was uh, conquered. And, and as he was conquered by the Greeks, Antiochus the Great accumulated fabulous wealth beyond all measure because they raided every temple they went into, they raided every treasury, they went after every artifact, they went after everything of any kind of value, not only the real estate of the ancient world, but also all of the accumulated values, the temples, and, and they would tend to, to capture those things and bring them back. Well, Antiochus the Great accumulated massive wealth. Well, his wealth was just sitting there eventually to be had by Rome. And Rome did, in fact, get that wealth. And they brought, said so they believed in prosperity, they believed in opulence, and the city of Rome reached a glory as no city had by virtue of its uh, uh, precious minerals, jewels, and as the text said, uh, basically opulent wealth. They believed in massive prosperity. In other words, they were also very materialistic in the sense that, and you see that in the very, very last verse there said, um, he shall make them rule over many and shall divide the land for a price. Everything in the Roman Empire was for sale. You could buy a title. You could buy a kingdom. You could buy a, in any small uh, a fiefdom. You could buy anything if you had enough money. You remember in the New Testament when Paul was, was talking with, I think it was the Philippian jailer, and Paul claimed he was a Roman citizen. And therefore, it was illegal for them to have done what they did to him, beating him and imprisoned him without a trial. And, and that man came back and said, I'm a Roman citizen. I got mine with a great price. He bought his Roman citizenship, even though he was a Macedonian. And, uh, and so everything was for sale. 
in, in, in the Roman culture. So the very atheistic, materialistic, and they were also humanistic in the sense that they basically ended up worshiping collective man, as we mentioned earlier. And it ultimately moved into a, a cult, a Caesar cult, until it ended up that Rome did put up idols. They were idolaters like all the rest, and the idols they put up were idols to Caesar and idols to the, to the Roman power and to Roman emblems, and they, they forced people to, to bow down and give allegiance uh, to these things. Uh, they believed ultimately that the highest deity was man, not God, and that Caesar embodied this, this uh, highest deity. Uh, they, they really f were uh, extremely uh, uh, schooled in government and politics and, and you know, the science of, of, of domination, and they, they ended up uh, uh, not only being rulers of, of far and wide, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the expanse of the, of the Roman Empire uh, geographically, but also uh, it, was, it was focused on, on man. So they were not only atheistic, they were materialistic, they were humanistic, and they were militaristic. Just because they could take some kingdoms with, with uh, deceit and some kind of working with traitors inside the walls of the, uh, of the fortresses and things like that, they still didn't back off when he came to an army. Nobody ever put an army together like Caesar. There have been great armies, but, but, but Rome had, because first of all, they started with multiple armies, multiple armies around the world that were fighting on different fronts, and then they began to consolidate, and they, they had best practices where they would, if, if they used certain weapons or certain tactics, they, they began to study it more than it had ever been studied before. Uh, military became a profession, uh, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of young men served in the, in the Roman armies and they had uh, people from everywhere and it was very lucrative to be in the Roman army. You served faithfully for a period of time and you would get a large piece of land, a grant. Uh, retiring generals received huge land grants, especially in the outposts like in Gaul and in Britannia. If you've studied your English history, you know that England at one time was basically made up of these huge allotments of land that were given to outstanding Roman soldiers who had maybe been Italian or they may have been Greek or any other nationality of the Mediterranean, but they served faithfully and they were given these, uh, this inheritance from, from Caesar, these large uh, plats of land. But they, they were extremely military, so they knew how to do uh, cavalry. They knew how to do horse. They knew how to do catapult. They knew how to do all the instrumentation of war. They could build fortresses. In fact, the text even says that uh, um, the um, he shall honor the god of the fortress, verse 38. In other words, it was military power that they realized uh, how important it was. And and we admire the great Roman road system. Well, the road system was nothing but a, but a high road, a king's highway, in order to move the military around the empire. I mean, it wasn't set up for commerce, although it was used for commerce and, and, and transportation in other ways, but it was a transportation communication system where it was uh, Caesar's road and nobody could be on it but Caesar's people. And it was a king's highway. And those roads, those famous roads that we know that crisscrossed the ancient world and all roads led to Rome, they were set up for military purposes. They were actually not only post roads, but they were martial roads that, that were used. And so they, they really uh, uh, were fast moving. 
Uh, if you remember having to translate a little bit of, uh, see, of Gallic Wars when I was in high school in Latin, and uh, we, we learned a lot about, about Caesar's military conquest. Now, when I say Caesar, I'm talking about the whole, the whole dynastic setup, all the way from Pompey, who technically wasn't a Caesar, all the way up through the Caesars that we know uh, during the first century and, and, and following. Basically, they, they multiplied the glory. They had more territory, uh, more power, more money. By the time we get to the days of Christ, the entire earth was under Roman rule. And basically, the point I probably could, could make the best is that what we see today is the remnant, the surviving of the Roman system. And let me sketch it out. This is going to be real sketchy, I hope. In, the, in a good sense, <laughs> not in the sense that it's used now, but, but let me just sort of plead with you for a moment as I close about what we have here. And by the way, I want you to remember that Christ was born in the fullness of time. That meant everything in the world had moved over the centuries and over the, over the, the, the continents the way God had ordained it so that when Christ came into the world, Everything was set the way. There was the right kind of government in place. There was the right kind of, of, uh, of economic system in place. Everything was set where Christ could come into that mess in the middle of that fourth kingdom. By the middle, I don't mean the historic middle, but I mean in the, at the apex of it, at the zenith of this power. And he, can, he could come in with the lowly king riding on a little mule, a little donkey coming in and, and manifesting the power of God. And Christ talked all about, what's the theme of the Bible? It's the kingdom of God. And that's what Christ talked about all the time, about the kingdom coming and the nature of the kingdom and, and all sorts of things. Well, what, what it is, is, this, is there's this, this comparison and this antithesis and this struggle between the kingdom of man as epitomized by Rome and then there's the kingdom of God as embodied in Christ. And that's really the thrust of the whole thing. And uh, so the whole, whole earth was under Roman rule. And uh, even in the uh, 19th century, uh, the, the Pax Britannia, the piece of Britain that ruled the world where the Union Jack was all around the world and, and the sun never set on the British Empire in, in the glory days, Queen Victoria and all the others, that was the apex of Roman, what was left of Roman ethos, geopolitical ethos that had been brought down through the European, the Western history and was epitomized in its best way in many ways and it ruled around the world. It had China, India, large portions of Africa and, and you, know, you know your geography that most of the world was ruled under, under the British flag. And then a century later, after one world war and going into another, they were joined by their, their younger sibling, America. And so the Pax Americana was nothing but a continuation in many ways of the, of the uh, uh, Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, China, Asia, and the, even the, the Eastern countries, that we think of before it became uh, not politically correct to use the word, Oriental, Eastern, uh, that, that whole sector of, of the planet uh, had become westernized. It became westernized by the adoption of a Western mindset and a Western way of thinking. There was a severe heresy 
of Christian faith known as communism, Marx and Engels. And that notion that was in their noggin about how they were supposed to rule the world and what history was all about with the conflicts and, the, and, and all and the resolutions of it, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and all the rest, that way of thinking, that Hegelian philosophy and that way of thinking had infected the Asians and the eastern part of the planet more than even the West. And so we see the massive communist movements, which are derivatives from Roman thought, conquering the world. China today, uh, parts of a large portion of India, and certainly the Soviet Union, much of South America, a large portion of Africa, are all under a communist uh, system. And, and in that system, they're just doing nothing but but taking corrupt, I think, in my opinion, corrupt ideas, but they're all derivative philosophically from the Western culture, which had its, its genesis, its fountainhead in Rome. So my point is that we live in a Roman world, and the whole world is Roman. And we're, we're now in that, in that thing. Now, what can we say? And by the way, things like the United Nations, the League of Nations, the 20th century developments did nothing but spread that Western thought through communism, which is one of the Western uh, um, seeds and ideas, into the East. So the whole world today is under uh, the influence, the continuing influence, and the continuing geopolitical ethos of Rome. And what did I say that was? Let me conclude. It's atheistic. Does that say anything to the way we're going to relate to them as God-fearers, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? We're living in a Roman world, and it's atheistic. It's cynical. There's a lot of little religions out there, but nobody takes them seriously. There's no power in them because the power does not abide in a, in a deity. The power abides in the humanity. And so they're humanistic. They're man-centered. Everything's all about man, about man's primacy, about man's survival, about man's thriving, about man's advancement. Uh, when we get to the, there's more to the description of Rome in the next paragraph, of, which we're not getting to today. I guess we will next week. But, but it, it talks about how they increase knowledge Look what we've done in, in the world in the last 150 years with respect to knowledge. We've gone basically from, from uh, pen and ink and, and printing press, no electronics of any kind, no telephone, telegraph, or anything, all the way to, to the developments we see now in artificial intelligence. And we've done that. If that's not an increase, in, an exponential increase, we're saying now the world runs by knowledge, by technology rather than by mining and manufacturing and things that the old economies used to run for. So we're materialistic, wealth, who controls the wealth? So we're atheistic, materialistic, humanistic, and we're militaristic. Don't kid yourself. With all the talk about peace, there's fighting all around the world, all the time, every day. And it is, it is the... Uh, the, the great power. So we're doing nothing but multiplying the glory. We want more territory, more power, more money. And everything is for sale. We're living in the fourth empire. We're living in the last days. We're living as God's people in the middle of a culture, of a planet that is as anti-God and his anti-Christ as you can possibly imagine. Even the religion that claims to be the closest to us 
in many ways with a holy man and a holy book and believing in one God, etc. Islam is severely, deliberately, and militaristically, and I mean that literally, anti-Christ. Paul, that's enough for one time, don't you think? <laughs> let's, let's have communion and bring us, bring us to the place we need to be. Let's sing first, I think.